Hi, everybody. Cheryl Ackeson here. Welcome to another edition of the Cheryl Ackeson Podcast. Today, an interview about investigative journalism in this brave new era of censorship with investigative journalist John Solomon. John Solomon is one of the best and most independent investigative journalists out there. His newest venture is called JustTheNews.com. I hope you'll check it out. John and I first crossed paths, and we crossed paths numerous times, by the way, when he worked with the Washington Times and I was investigating stories for CBS News. Sometimes we were on parallel paths investigating the same stories, such as Fast and Furious, the secret government operation that moved thousands of assault rifles and other weapons into the hands of Mexican drug cartels, believe it or not. I started covering that story in early 2011. By the way, my reporting on that topic at CBS News received the Emmy Investigative Reporting Award and the Edward R. Murrow Award for Investigative Reporting, but the networks would never report a story like that independently today, and the journalism groups would never give an award or their top prizes to such a story because my industry has been so taken over and corrupted by these propagandists who controversialize and control the narratives on behalf of the interests they work for. And that's part of what John will talk about with us today. In addition to that, he'll tell us about his new children's book, inspired in part by the censorship experiences he's witnessed and gone through himself. Here's John Solomon. Yeah, listen, I'm a career reporter. I grew up uh, as a 17-year-old at UPI. 19 years old, I was hired by the Associated Press. I did two decades in one of the most you know, well-known mainstream uh, wire services in America, then left the AP after 20 years, retired there, went to the Washington Post to be its national uh, investigative reporter, did some big stuff there, then uh, got hired to be the editor of the Washington Times and moved over to The Hill, where I started their television division. And then in 2020, I jumped in and um, created my own news site, Just the News, and I just keep doing the same sort of things I've been doing for 30 years. I just like to write stories and inform the public. Well, interestingly enough, you worked at some some of these mainstream places, as I have you, AP and Washington Post, and me, CBS, CNN, and so on. And I think we probably have made similar observations that these really once mighty news organizations often now cover news in a way that's totally conflicted and surprising yeah. considering the the era and the time when you and I worked there. Yeah, listen, I think the generation that currently owns these newsrooms in action and sometimes in leadership, they no longer have a curiosity to challenge the official line. In fact, they become the pirates of the official line. And our generation, and, and I, I say this because I, I learned from so many amazing people, curiosity was the first requirement of being a good reporter. You were naturally cynical, you were naturally distrustful until you could verify something. Today, people take handout journalism and put it out there, even if it gra gravely misleads the American public. And we've seen that from uh, the, the efforts to suppress the COVID origin story, the efforts to suppress the Hunter Biden story in 2019 when I wrote it at the Hill or 2020 when Miranda Devine uh, broke the laptop story. All throughout now, we have a news media industry that's more aligned with the people that they cover than with the people they're supposed to be covering the news for. And they are oddly sometimes skeptical of the stuff that deserves consideration. They rule it out off the top because it's the wrong narrative. And then they're not skeptical 
of the government line or the party line on stuff that's absolutely not true. So it's just bizarre. So you've written, you've written a new book. One reason I invited you on, um, aimed at children. I think this is a great idea because I don't think kids are being taught in school today, just fundamentals of American society and democracy. Tell us about the book that you've written. Yeah, you know, I became bewildered. You know this because we we had many private conversations back then about the lack of outrage in 2020-2021 when uh, there was so much censorship going on and no one in our profession seemed to care about it. They weren't in the slightest worried. And I began to ask myself, well, why? And I I went on a path of self-discovery to discover something. I didn't have any idea. My children are much older. And so I didn't have any visibility into the school districts the last 10 or 12 or 15 years. There are one and possibly two generations of young Americans that weren't taught the civics lessons that you and I taught. They weren't, uh, they weren't, it wasn't explained to them why the First Amendment was first to our founding fathers, or why uh, the Bill of Rights was passed, or why freedom was at the core of the American existence and the American experience. Instead, they spent most of the time, if they got any American history, uh, uh, being told uh, emanating from slaveholders and a dark, deep, uh, horrible history, which of course isn't true. We have our problems, but America as a beacon of freedom is still a a predominant narrative of our story. And so they were taught that maybe in some cases, uh, censorship could be not only acceptable, but preferred to instill one narrative for the better good of a collective. I couldn't believe that this had gone on in one or two generations of school children. And so I I reached out to a a company called Brave Books. We had been talking about doing a, um, a child book. And I said, listen, I know what I want to do my children's book on. I want to tell the story why censorship is so dangerous in, in this point in American history and why the First Amendment was first, why free speech is essential to the American experience. They loved it. And then I had the perfect character I wanted to bring to the book, my son's hamster. I have an autistic son. He got a hamster a couple of years ago and the hamster became quite famous because uh, my my wife and son went away for a brief trip and I was entrusted with two things, just feed the hamster and don't let him escape. I fed the hamster, but I may have left the cage open for a little bit longer and the hamster got out and I spent five hours into the wee hours of a morning looking for my hamster so desperate that I actually went to CVS and got a stethoscope and went along the floorboards listening for the hamster. I found the air conditioning vent and I got him back in the cage and I thought I had dodged a bullet with my family. The next morning, my co-host on television, Amanda, had heard the story. She told the whole world on our show that night and my secret was no longer safe with my wife or my son and Chunk the hamster became kind of famous. Well, I want to take that viral moment with this hamster, and I turned him into a newspaper editor in an imaginary hamster community called Starlot City. And he's trying to get his newspaper out through the tubes that connect the um, the hamster city, and he can't because some sinister man named Carl the koala has blocked those tubes. And the tubes, of course, are an allegory for uh, big tech and social media, what we just lived through in 19, 20, 20, 21 with government-backed uh, censorship through big tech companies. And so we tell this really fun story with all these lovable animals, Chunk the Hamster, um, Seymour uh, Clues, the, uh, the detective dog, there's a, a peacock and all sorts of delightful um uh characters in there and so the kids love it but there's also an underlying message that we want to do that uh if you can't have free speech you're endangered in this particular instance the hamster not being able to get his newspaper out there's a flood coming and he can't warn the community that there's an impending flood that could endanger the city and so there is a message of free speech uh ultimately the koala uh, carl the koala gets exposed and he's running a racket he wants to give everybody free 
um, kayaks so that they can survive the flood and then they'll be dependent on them for life. And so it has a little bit of that government giveaway, a little bit of free speech, but it's a really fun, engaging story for children. I debuted it in Philadelphia, the land of liberty, uh, with all these parents. Uh, and it was an amazing weekend to just talk to parents and children. And uh, it was very rewarding to see their reaction and to be able to have a real conversation about free speech. And the name of the book and how people can order it or get it. Yeah, Hidden Headlines is the name of the book, and uh, you can get it at bravebooks.us, bravebooks.com, bravebooks.us will get you there. They have two models. You can subscribe to a monthly book if you want a pro-America book a series for your children. If you just want to buy this one a la carte, you can do both at bravebooks.com. What's so weird is that teaching people about the good side of America, which should absolutely I just think any neutral view says that should be taught along with the flaws as well, the problems mm -hmm. of American democracy or whatever you want to call it. And yet it's probably considered controversial in some corners that you would even say there's something good to be learned about our country. Yeah, no, you said it right. That's what parents were saying to me when I went to Philadelphia, went to Cherry Hill this weekend. We don't have books like this. We're yearning for something that can tell a positive story that freedom and free speech and liberty and the American experience are good. Sure, we have our flaws and we shouldn't gloss over them, but they shouldn't become the dominant narrative of a country that has created so much good. We are a still the beacon uh, of freedom to a world that longs for it. And, you know, you television show and all the work you do your podcast you talk to world leaders from time to time and the question that's most jarring to me the last two years when i interview foreign ambassadors foreign prime ministers uh foreign uh presidents is why are you turning out children from your schools to hate your country and i don't have an answer for that but that looking glass uh, that alice in wonderland looking glass phenomenon where the world can see what we're doing to ourselves in America, but sometimes we in the elitist media can't see it, was so jarring to me. And I, I think this book tries to shock people into pausing for a second and saying, hey, we are kind of getting a little silly here, aren't we? And let's go back to the basics of what the American experience is. And I hope people benefit from it. Well, I'm sure part of what inspires you is the issues that you've been through. I mean, we can't, we don't have time because of your time limitations to go into all of that today. But if you want to give an overview of what it's been like to be a journalist on the cutting edge of breaking news stories, to be labeled, you know, conservative and fake news when you're actually the one who's got it right, you know, but to be censored and labeled and controversialized and attacked by this machine that comes after you. Tell us a little bit about how you've survived that. And if you want to give an example or two for people who don't know any of the inside stories, maybe yeah. maybe Listen, you could. Remember we we had just the news were one of the first to report that uh there was significant intelligence that COVID lit in wuhan that had been funded by the u.s government and specifically nih we were uh, labeled by NewsGuard and many other uh, things as a conspiracy theorist we were beaten down for a while but we stuck to the facts because the facts warranted that story be told we didn't tell the story because we were trying to have an effect it's what the facts were and for a long time people ridiculed us and then all of a sudden they caught out with us and now they just pretend that moment didn't happen in our profession they just moved on perhaps more significantly uh, my reporting in 2019 at the hill that first exposed hunter biden's influence peddling operations around the globe russia uh, Ukraine uh, and China among them, and the fact that his father had been involved in firing a prosecutor that was investigating Hunter Biden at the time, that got ridiculed. In fact, one of the 
headlines of 2019 that I got, you know, called a conspiracy theorist was that Hunter Biden, the Ukrainian government believed Hunter Biden hadn't paid taxes on his Ukrainian money. When the laptop came out and after people realized that the laptop was real, it was not a Russian disinformation operation, there was the emails that validated what the Ukrainian prosecutors told me in 2019. Hunter Biden had not declared $400,000 of uh Burisma Holdings Ukraine gas money on his taxes. And he was for years being warned by his inner circle, you better pay it, you better pay it. So what the Ukrainians had told me and what I had accurately reported, you know, became confirmed. But after two years of being ridiculed as a conspiracy theorist, and of course, the uh, recently broke the story of how Tony Blinken and former CIA director Mike Morrell worked together to create that letter that falsely claimed that the release of the Hunter Biden laptop was a Russian information operation and possibly disinformation. And again, all of these were censorship moments trying to cancel stories that I and other great reporters like Miranda Devine, you and others, you did some great work on the early COVID um, uh, statistics that really I think were groundbreaking. And we were all silenced for a period of time. Now today, I think uh, facts have caught up with the rest of the media and they realize that what we reported where it was true. For me, uh, I never let that stuff bother me too much. You you know, obviously it feels personally stinging when your own profession rebukes you for a while, but I knew the facts are right. One of the fun things that happened recently is um, in the um, Rudy Giuliani investigation, I cooperated with prosecutors and the prosecutors learned that my whole Hunter Biden story, well, it came from them. It came from the Justice Department and the FBI and they were kind of shocked and like, oh, wow, we were behind your story. Um, but, you know, reporters, I think stick to facts when they know something's true, they just keep reporting it. And eventually, I, I, even in this era of cancer culture, I believe the truth comes out. And I think most Americans now today know the story of Hunter Biden, the laptop, COVID-19, the origins, and they're better for having had those facts put before them. Well, John Solomon, for people listening, has, I don't know how he does it, some of the best sources in the business, and I'm not talking conservative sources, although he has plenty of those, but he has sources who speak spoke to him in the Obama administration at the high levels, and all yeah. he just has people who he can get good factual information from. And boy, does he check it out before he reports it. And the irony is, because the propagandists so control the narratives, it is so swift that they take action against what they deem to be falsely misinformation. They act very quickly, yeah. and then when it's proven that they're the ones who put out the information, like the intelligence community writing that fake letter or the letter that had fake accusations or facts in it, nobody's rebuked for that. So it's very quick to act on one side and then no action when they're proven wrong. And it's sort of, I think that's the tell. And it's become so audacious that people are learning to look for these cues, that when something is called a conspiracy theory by everybody, maybe that's something to actually explore and listen to because there are powerful interests who don't want you to hear that information. So I don't know, this may be kind of imploding and backfiring on them in a way. I'd you love to hear your you final thoughts this. on that. Go ahead. I know, you, I know your time is short, and I apologize. You, uh, you live through this with the extraordinary work that you did on Fast and Furious and all the blowback. And you saw it isn't just the media sometimes they're doing. It's the media in collaboration with government actors. And it's that complicity, which we now see in the Twitter files, we now see in the Missouri in Louisiana lawsuits against big tech that have exposed a lot of um, uh, federal intervention, encouraging censorship or fostering censorship, either directly 
or indirectly, the Elvis Chan operation up at FBI in San Francisco, sending censorship requests to big tech. It was that collaboration that most mortified our founding fathers 246 years ago. They did not want to see a government that ever was tempted to collaborate or on its own try to silence its people's opinions. And I think we're in an era now where our profession has to come goes with the idea that it facilitated censorship in the cancellation of accurate stories and figure out how to fix it. Listen, I don't want people to come to me and say, I'm sorry, I don't care. I just want them to treat the next set of facts more seriously than the last set of facts that maybe they bowled over without a basis. And I think uh, our profession's at a very important inflection moment. I believe the article that former New York Times reporter Jeff Gerth wrote in Columbia Journalism Review ought to be read by every journalist, whether they're a first year J student in college or a senior editor at one of the most important publications in America, because he very dispassionately, just no emotion, just facts laid out the many, many stumbles that our profession had and how government actors fostered those stumbles for some agenda that they had. And I think we need to have that inflection moment. I get the sense, you know, over the last few months, as many uh, mainstream reporters have reached out to me and started collaborating with me again, that maybe we're entering into that moment inflection. And I sure hope so. I do too. Jeff Gerth, you mentioned, you can probably find that article, G-E-R-T-H in Columbia Journalism Review. He worked on that for years. Another excellent independent journalist, formerly of the New York Times, Pulitzer Prize winner. And just like him, John Solomon, thank you for doing independent news and staying alive through all these troubled times, you and justthenews.com. I really appreciate it. I'm sure our listeners love hearing from you today. Back at you, Cheryl. You're one of the greatest reporters. Well, we're lucky enough. You're one of the greatest reporters I've ever had the chance to work alongside and watch. And uh, your country is better for all the great work that you've done. Ah, John. Thanks. (laughs) I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you did, you'll leave a great review and share it with your friends. And check out my other podcast, Full Measure After Hours, for more original reporting and interviews on off-narrative topics that powerful interests often try to censor. It's never been more important to support independent reporting. You can do that by going to the CherylAckison.com website, click the store tab and browse our great products. The most popular new slogan that I have on products there is, I need to find some new conspiracy theories. All the old ones came true. Proceeds support causes like the Cheryl Ackeson Ion Awards, giving cash awards recognizing and encouraging independent off-narrative reporting by college students and professionals. Do your own research, make up your own mind, think for yourself. 